0: The book of Acts, chapter 26. The text of this morning's message begins in the 12th verse of Acts, chapter 26, and continues to the 20th verse. Paul, speaking to King Agrippa, says, Thus I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appointed to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom I send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those at Damascus, then at Jerusalem, and throughout all the country of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of their repentance."
1: I'm going to invite you to look at one other text before we get to the one that David just read. If you want to look at this one with me in Luke 21. The reason I'm directing your attention to Luke 21 is because the first question I have is, how did Paul get where he is? How did he get in front of King Agrippa to bear testimony in this way? And in order to go right to the root of that question... You have to go back to the prophetic word of Jesus Christ concerning the ministry of his disciples. And I want to read two verses with you about this matter from Luke 21. And the verses are 12 and 13. Jesus says, They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. Now, I see in those two verses something very sobering, something very encouraging. The sobering word is that even though the cause of Christ is going to triumph in the end, because he is sovereign, he is alive, his cause will triumph. Nevertheless, in the short run, Those who undertake to bear witness for this triumphant king will be arrested sometimes, persecuted, put in jail, and brought before synagogues, kings, governors, princes. The encouraging thing in these two verses is that under God's providence, those unintended persecutions... Turn out for testimony. You see that in verse 13? This will be a time to bear testimony. In other words, imprisonment might interrupt your evangelistic strategy, but it won't interrupt God's evangelistic strategy. Have you ever stopped to think how many times Paul bore witness to Christ in circumstances and places he did not intend to be. It was not part of his plan. Just read through the book of Acts and see how many times the testimony he bore was in places unplanned. Now, I'm not debunking planning. Paul had a plan. Romans 15, he tells us his plan. And in... uh, Acts, we see his plan, planning is necessary, it's good. God God gave us a brain, we're supposed to use it to plan our days. My point is, once you've planned your days, God rules your days. God moves you through your days. And they don't always go according to plan. What God wants, according to last week's text, is that we put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace... And that we move with the gospel. If on the way from point A to point B in our plan, we get bumped off of course onto point C, he doesn't want us to take off the shoes. Therein we make a great mistake many times. We get a good plan for the day and we say, now here's my plan. And maybe I can glorify God in this particular way if I cross this particular person's path. And before you know it, the whole plan is shot. So you take off your shoes and put them in your pockets and say, well, God, I had a plan to go from A to B. And since you bump me off the plan, I'll put my shoes in my pocket and wait till a new plan turns up tomorrow. And that's just wrong. The biblical approach is if you're on a detour, God has a plan. They will deliver you up to prisons and take you before governors and kings. That will be a time for witness. In other words, always and in every circumstance, be alert and ready to move with the gospel of peace. Now, here we are in our text today in Acts 26, and Paul is before King Agrippa. How in the world did he get there? I mean, picture this. This is an itinerant, obscure Jewish Christian preacher. He's a nobody in the Roman world. And he's standing before the king of all Palestine who had been appointed by the Caesar. It would be as though we got a letter in the mail tomorrow from David Yeager in Guinea. And he said, I was asked by the king of Guinea to spend a half an hour in his palace telling him about the gospel. And we would all say immediately... How in the world did that come about? Well, that's the question we ought to ask for Paul. How in the world does he get a half an hour hearing, probably more, with the king of Agrippa and his wife and Festus, the governor? Well, it wasn't his plan. What happened? You know the story. Two years earlier, he's in Jerusalem on plan to deliver the Money and then head for Rome. And he gets arrested on trumped-up charges. First thing that happens after he gets arrested is the fulfillment of prophecy. He gets to bear testimony to the Sanhedrin. Seventy unbelievers, probably. And then he gets plopped in jail, and there's a plot to kill him, right? You remember that? And his relative finds out about it, goes to the captain and says, they're going to kill him tonight. And they've all taken an oath not to eat until they do it. So he gets a big legion and takes them all down to where? Where? the capital of of the region. The capital of Palestine was Caesarea. And he's put in jail there, and the first thing that happens, is he gets to testify to Felix, the governor, in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Well, Felix isn't converted. He leaves him in jail for two years. And a new governor comes along. Festus is his name. And it so happens that Agrippa shows up in town, the king of all Palestine with his wife, And Festus says, I've got an idea. I wonder where this idea comes from. I got an idea. Let's have Agrippa over and have this prisoner give his testimony to the king. Now, here he is on a two-year detour off his plan to get to Rome. And he testifies before the whole Sanhedrin and the three biggest rulers or political figures in uh, Palestine, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Now, surely the lesson for us in Jesus' words in Luke twenty-one thirteen, and in its fulfillment in Paul's life, is this. God has gospel purposes for every detour in your life. God has gospel purposes for every detour in your life. So I want to ask you real personally, anybody on a two-year detour this morning between plan A and B? Anybody on a 10-year setback of a plan you had 10 years ago? 20? You moved to C and then you moved to D and you tried to get back to the line you went to... E, and now you're off on F, you'll never get back to the plan. You now know. Any of you frustrated, seething, wishing you had been able to stay on the route from plan A to B? I mean, it was a good plan. It was for God. You had prayed about it. Well, most of us, most of us fall into that category. We didn't plan this, this chapter in our lives this way. And I just see so much encouragement in this text, so much excitement for how to live expectantly under the providence of God. Here's the way you ought to do it, I think. You get up in the morning, you get alone somewhere and you open the Bible and you meditate for a little bit on some good, encouraging text, some promise of God. Get your heart happy in God. Then you pray and you commit the day to the Lord. In prayer, you make some kind of little general plan about what you're gonna do in the parts of your day. Then you stop, and you pray again. And you say, now Lord, I know that I don't run my life. And I've got this plan, I think it's a good one, I think you've led me to it. But I know that the phone calls I get, I don't determine. Who bumps into me in the car, I don't determine. Who sits down beside me at the lunch table, I don't determine, and a hundred other decisions today that will affect my life, I don't have any control over. Would you so providentially oversee my day that whatever happens, it will be spiritually beneficial for me and for the people that I meet? And would you grant that every person I meet, I would view as a divine appointment rather than an irritation or a frustration? That just transforms life. If you just sit back and realize you're... It's out of control. (laughs) You do not run your days, no matter how smart you think you are. You you should make a plan, but you don't run your days and determine what happens in them. If you do that, life will become like jogging in downtown Minneapolis. I was out jogging on Tuesday morning, downtown Minneapolis, and I had a plan. I jog all over the place here. I go to the university. I go down Lake Street. I go down Cedar Up here and over to the downtown. So Tuesday I was gonna go downtown and I pray all over the place for everything I see. And my plan was sort of angle north, hit Nicollet, go south, but to maybe the Westminster president kind of angle back home. Well, here's the way I decided to do it. I said, Lord, I'm just gonna go with the lights. And so, uh, instead of breaking the law, uh, like most joggers do, I decided every time I bump into a red light going west, I'd go north. Until I hit a red light, then I'd go this way. Until I hit a red light, then I'd just kind of, you know, jiggle-joggle until I'm home again. And wouldn't you know it, that on the corner at the Lutheran Brotherhood building, David Livingston and David Laurian and Jerry Sundberg were just standing there. And I bumped right into him, sweaty and tired. And I just greeted him with some unprepared greeting, since I probably didn't have on my gospel shoes as well as I should have, but my prayer shoes, and went on. And I thought to myself, how many hundreds of different ways could those lights have sent me in downtown? And they sent me straight to these three guys. And I said, what a picture of life under the sovereign providence of God, that if you if you go with God and let the lights turn you, boom, stop, go, boom, stop, go, boom, through your day, you don't know what's coming, by and large, and you just go with the flow and uh, obey the biblical laws. By his providential red lights, he will see to it that you bump into the people he wants you to bump into. You don't need a fret about whether you get to the person you thought you should have gotten to. Well, I I should take the time here to tell you about some experiences I had on the plane going out to Seattle and back, but I won't. I'll save it for another time because there was an appointment that God had going out but not coming back. But I won't tell you about it this time. It was a good one, though. I I I hope that you live your days with expectancy and hope. And not be frustrated too much if your plan doesn't get accomplished. Let's get back to Paul here for a minute. Paul is standing before Agrippa by God's divine appointment. It's owing to a two-year, no doubt, frustrating imprisonment detour with many red lights along the way, making his route to Rome so utterly circuitous it must have just galled this Goal-oriented Paul. But he had Luke with him, I believe, and Luke wrote Luke twenty-one thirteen, And Luke probably said to Paul every time he got frustrated, now settle down. Remember, the Lord said this will be a time for testimony. So Paul contents himself and then he preaches to Agrippa. So our text makes its point in two ways. We've been looking at one of the ways, namely its existence. The existence of this text is a fulfillment of Luke 21, 13. And the point of its existence is God has gospel purposes in your detours. Don't take off the shoes of the gospel of peace when you're frustrated that your plan didn't work. Keep them on and open your eyes and some unexpected contact will be made. Now the second way this text makes its point is by its content, of course, and so we have to look briefly at the five things that Christ says to Paul on the Damascus road he intends to do through his testimony and yours. You shouldn't be a Paul necessarily, some of you should be. In fact, you know, I was just thinking As 90 by 90 comes to a close in a few months and we're two years ahead of schedule, what should our next goal be? And I counted up these missionaries that we've got on the road to go and those we already have. And I thought, I wonder if we should make a goal from here on out to tithe our membership to the foreign fields. We've almost got it at this point. That's just a thought. You pray about it and see whether that might be a goal to always stay up to a tithe of our membership cross-culturally. Now, I lost my point. What was I saying here? Uh, I better go back to my notes and find out. Uh, I don't know. I'll just pick up right here. Paul is receiving this word from the uh, Lord on the Damascus Road, and the Lord is telling him five things he aims to achieve. Oh, yes. And I was telling you, you don't have to be a Paul to do this. Right. So the, the the point is, I don't want to say you all need to be cross-cultural missionaries or you all need to plant churches or you all need to be single. Paul chose singleness. He chose to be a church planter and he chose to be full-time cross-cultural. And I hope a lot of you a tithe will do that. Now. Whether or not that's your particular form, we all should have the shoes of the readiness to move with the gospel of peace on. And here are the five things that God wants to achieve through us. Let me read verses 16 to 18. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which, I have, uh, in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom... I send you, here it comes, to whom I send you to open their eyes, that you may turn, that they may turn from the darkness to light and from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, those are the five things I want to look at with you. We really only have time to look at three of them real quickly, I think. Number one, God intends for us to be... A go-and-tell community, not a come-and-see community mainly. I get that from the word send in verse 17, second half of the verse. To whom I send you. That is, don't stay here and wait for people to come. You go to them. This is the way Jesus did it, right? He was in heaven and he looked down at a lost world and he looked at his father and they made a covenant with one another and the father said... Will you go and pay the price so that we can redeem a people for ourselves? And he said, I will go and tell them about you that there might be life. So he comes at great price to himself and he tells. And then he says, now, as the Father has sent me, I send you. It's just plain in the New Testament that whatever the case was in the Old Testament, it's a go and tell mission in the New Testament, not a come and see mission mainly the reason i say mainly is because you do have instances of coming and seeing in the new testament in first corinthians where people walk into a church like this some of you may be here unbelievers walking into a search like this and you will hear the word of god you will sense the presence of his spirit and you'll be converted that ought to be happening regularly in our services i think but mainly we are to be a go and tell community let me give you an illustration now Suppose we all... There are about a thousand people who worship at Bethlehem regularly. Uh, you're a third of them. And uh, suppose all thousand of us lived in Detroit ten years ago. And uh, we all got together and we said, let's do something really radical. Let's move, all of us, one thousand of us, to Minneapolis. And... uh strategize how to win that city to Christ. And so, we all resign our jobs and sell our houses and and uh, get on buses and in cars and ride to Minneapolis. And when we get here, we all gather around some big empty lot or find some building and we sit down and we say, now let's pray and see how the Lord guides us in our strategy. And we're praying and somebody stands up and says, Well, I think that as I read the Bible, we should have a kind of go-and-tell mentality. And therefore, we should just all not get the same job and work in one industry or start some kind of Christian industry. But we should just get jobs all over these cities. All different kinds of jobs. Whatever we can do. And everybody says, that sounds like a great idea. And then they pray some more. And somebody else says, well, as I read 1 Peter, and as I look at Matthew 5 about the salt of the earth, I think the Lord is leading us to not live in communes, but to be like salt and just scatter all over the place and buy houses in all the suburbs and downtown and to uh, rent apartments everywhere. And everybody says, amen, that is a great idea. And so we do it. And ten years later, what have we got? This. Does it it strike you as awesome that when I tell you on this first point that the will of God for Bethlehem is a go-and-tell mission, not a come-and-see mission, that we are exactly where we're supposed to be. Ninety-nine percent of you are exactly where God wants you to be. And that to reach this city, all we need is power. We don't need any more programmatic positioning. We did it under the sovereign hand of God. We did it. You're out there. You go to work. You live all over the place. Hundreds of different professions in this church. Hundreds of different neighborhoods in this church. You're there. You've gone. I tell you, this is so encouraging to me because I don't have to invent any strategy. I mean, we can invent a little program where we send out 10, 12, 20 people once a week or so, but that's not the name of the game. The name of the game is go and tell everybody, strategically position yourself in a lost culture in order to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if I were to ask you, let's let's all go to Seattle and do it. In 10 years, we look just like this. The Holy Spirit needs to come. We need him. We need four messages about evangelism just to wake us up maybe to his movement and pray with all our might that he fall upon us and realize that the Holy Spirit is the master strategist. He has put us in hundreds, Of locations, probably the multiplied contacts with unbelievers of all the thousand people in this church are what? Five, ten thousand per week. What more could we want in terms of strategy? It's all in place. All we need to do is open our mouths. The second thing I see in this text, besides the go and tell strategy, is that... We are to open the eyes of unbelievers. Verse 18, to whom I send you, to open their eyes. Now, the text that unfolds the meaning of that or explains the need of it is 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which goes like this. The God of this age, that's Satan, Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to his the likeness of God. Satan has a design for this city. Very plain what it is. Blind unbelievers so they can't see the gospel in its value and truth and beauty. God has a design according to Acts 26, 18. Namely, to open those eyes and oppose Satan's blinding work. And we are so prone, I think to somehow get Satan's design more powerful, more appropriate, and more durable than God's design. And I just want to point you to God's design and say, Jesus Christ said to the Apostle Paul, he aims for us to open people's eyes. That's why we live where we live and work where we work. We are to open the eyes of the blind. And you will respond, as Paul no doubt did, how in the world can I open anybody's eyes? Who am I to open people's eyes? Now, there are two answers to that. One is given in 2 Corinthians. It goes like this, verse 6 of chapter 4. It is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the first answer is, God opens the eyes to see the light of the gospel. But the text says, verse 18, you're supposed to do it. Paul, I send you to open their eyes. John, you, I send you by your witness to open their eyes. So how do you put this together? My answer is real simple. We are partners with the Holy Spirit in opening the eyes of the blind. And our part of the partnership is twofold. Number one, prayer. And number two, witness. Now, the reason witness is absolutely indispensable is this. The Holy Spirit never wills to open the eyes of the heart to behold what is not there in the mind. If there is no truth in the mind to behold the beauty and truth of, he will not open the eyes of the heart. That's his ordained strategy. The Holy Spirit ordains that when truth enters the mind, he will open the eyes of the heart to behold something. If there's nothing there to behold, why open the eyes? Evangelism is absolutely indispensable in the converting process of the Holy Spirit. He does not open the eyes to see nothing. He opens the eyes to see truth. So there is always a correlation in mission and evangelism between the truth of the witness, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Does it ever strike you as strange that when Paul prays in his epistles, he almost always prays for the speaking of the word of God rather than the opening of the hearts of the hearers? Let there be boldness. Let there be truth. Let your word run and be glorified. It's because of the indispensability of this horizontal transaction of truth entering the mind. God, the Holy Spirit, so loves the truth that he inspired and gave, that he ordains that when the truth enters the mind, he will open the eyes of the heart to behold the truth. And until that truth which he loves is there, he withholds his eye-opening power. And so there's a real sense in which he can say, God waits for you. God waits for you and that the point of dynamic Holy Spirit transaction in the life of a person is waiting for you to happen. To stand aloof and say, God, save so-and-so, save so-and-so, save so-and-so. And not to say anything is to contradict the biblical pattern of salvation. It's a triangle. God is the pinnacle of the triangle We are on one side and the unbelievers over here. Our tasks are two parts of the triangle. Prayer this way. Oh, God, come and do for them what you did for Lydia, opening her heart to receive what? Well, the second part is I will put truth into their mind. And with my truth put in their mind and your Holy Spirit working on their heart, there will be a... a, uh, Catalyst and an explosion of faith. Recognition of truth. God ordains that we partner with the Holy Spirit in opening the eyes of the blind. Perhaps I should close with just one more of these five. Namely, that we are to do that in order that people, I'm still in verse 18, in order that people would turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, let me make two comments on this and then we'll be done. I want us to see the connection between these two turnings here and the opening of the eyes of the blind. Because I i feel so encouraged that when the eyes are opened, the people themselves do the turning. Do you see that? I don't turn them. God's not turning them. They're turning. The eyes are opened, and they turn, one, away from darkness, and two, away from Satan. Let's just talk about the darkness first. Noelle and I lived in Germany in a little half-bedroom apartment, and we had a guest one time back in 1972, and uh, she was blind, totally blind. She lived with us for about a week. One night, about 10 o'clock, I walked out into the hall, and the uh, light was off, and it was totally pitch black. And down at the end of the hall, in the restroom, uh, she was in there singing. And uh, the light was off. I could see under the door. And I called out, oh, the switch is... And I caught myself halfway through. She never turns the lights on. I walked into the hallway and I felt out of my element. I was going to bump into something because I have eyes. When you don't have eyes, when your eyes are not open, darkness is your native element. It's not awkward. You don't flip on lights to change things. You just move around and you're at home. If God opened her eyes physically, she would immediately flick on a light. If I walk into a bathroom that's dark... I flip on the light. If the light doesn't go on, I turn. That's what the text says. I turn, I walk out in the light. So you see the connection between the opening of the eyes and the turning? The opening of the eyes is a spiritual phenomenon by the Holy Spirit by which we come to have the capacity to see the light of the gospel, to see beauty so that we're not going into darkness and sin anymore. We see it as darkness. I don't belong here anymore. Where's their light? Oh, there it is. And you... You gravitate toward the light. Now, what about this second one? Turning from the power of Satan to God. This one just amazes me all the more because I asked myself and sort of posed the question to God as I was studying this. Really, if my eyes are opened, I can just walk away from the power of, the whole, of Satan, from the power of Satan? I mean, it says just... Uh, open their eyes, that they might turn from Satan, the power of Satan. And I want to say, well, wait a minute, surely Satan can hold on to them, can't he, with their eyes wide open? And I thought, and I thought, and the conclusion I came to was this. The only power that Satan has over you and me is the power of deceit. And lies. He cannot control you any other way than by lies. So, if the eye opens to truth and you see these, these hooks of deceit for what they really are, they fall. Because you're not deceived anymore. This is incredibly encouraging. The only way Satan can hold a person is by lies, by deceit. Do you remember from last week what the beginning or what the first piece of armor was and the last piece of armor was that is to protect us from Satan with the principalities and powers? The first piece of armor is the belt of what? Say truth. And the last piece of armor is the sword of the spirit, which is the what? Word of God. Truth at the beginning, truth at the end. We could go through the others and see their relationship to truth as well. Satan cannot abide the truth. He's a liar from the beginning. He does all that he does to hold a Christian by lying to them. When the eyes go open, deceit is seen for what it really is. Say he lies that Stealing is a a better way to be happy than by being honest. Lying on your tax report is a better way to have uh, happiness in the future than being honest. Uh, Lust is a better way to get more pleasure than vigilance over your eyes. Uh, You just go right down the list, how Satan lies to us about sin. When the eyes open to the surpassing beauty of Christ and holiness, we're free. The very essence of Christian hedonism is that God opens the eyes to behold the surpassing value of truth and beauty and to see that what Satan has to offer is a lie and is second-rate and fleeting in its pleasure. Well, we've done as much as we have time to do. Let me just sum up. The content of Christ's message to Paul on Damascus Road was that he aimed to do five things, and I'll mention them all. One, that he be a goer and a teller. And through that going and telling, that he open people's eyes in team with the Holy Spirit. And that when those eyes are opened, people would turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And that they might have forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. So there is the agenda for your prayer life and the expectation for your witness life. And my prayer for you and for me is that as we ponder the work of God, we might see it as the most important work in the universe, more important than scientific advances, more important than cultural developments, more important than industrial breakthroughs, that the salvation of one person from everlasting ruin to everlasting joy is more important than all the cultural progress in the universe. I want to close with one verse of a song. Charles Wesley was converted resoundingly by the work of the Holy Spirit through the testimony of truth with a great eye-opening experience. And he wrote a great hymn about it. You know which one I'm talking about? It's called And Can It Be. We're going to sing one verse and the verse is number three. It's page 260. And I want you to sing verse three and let it be for you a kind of affirmation of what God has done in your own life and a kind of prayer that he would enable you to be part of doing it in other people's lives and that if he hasn't done it in your life, It'd be a prayer that he would. Verse number 3, number 260.
0: It's a summary of our text. Let's stand and sing it together.